Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, baby. Hello, baby. Hello, baby. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of the Brown Baby Podcast. I am your host, Nick S. Shukla. I'm a dad of two, the author of the memoir Brown Baby, and a man who hasn't touched his Duolingo app in about six months. I guess I'll never learn Spanish. Yo como manzanas. That's all I remember. This week's guest is Andy Oliver. Andy Oliver is... A delight to talk to. She is an award-winning chef and broadcaster. She is a host of the BBC's Great British Menu. She is the host of Sky Arts Live's book club alongside uh, one of the greats, Elizabeth Day, and also Simon Savage, a brilliant, brilliant book person. And she is also the host of Beat the Chef on Channel Four and Food Unwrapped, and a contributing chef and ho- chef, chef and host on Saturday Kitchen. And she also is often on one of my favourite Radio 4 shows, Kitchen Cabinet. I really loved my chat with Andy. She was so much fun to talk to. We spoke about her relationship with her daughter, Makita Oliver, about her childhood and her parents, and about the importance of food, because why else would I have an amazing food person on this show if not to talk about food? Yes, it's a quick intro this week, mostly because I go on holiday tomorrow and I haven't packed, I haven't cleaned i haven't done anything that i'm meant to do i'm doing podcast things because i want the podcast to come out while i'm away yes i'm recording this ahead of time i hope that's okay Uh, yeah i really just wanted to get this uploaded so so swift it was this intro that i neglected to tell you to buy my book to buy brown baby please buy brown baby look i have not been away since august 2019 it feels like i think i did a week off last year probably did a week away last year but like i'm just really ready for this holiday Oh, I have an important announcement for you, actually. I am doing London Podfest on Saturday, the 4th of September, 2021 at 10.30am. This Saturday, in fact, the Saturday this drops. And my guest is Himesh Patel, the actor Himesh Patel, him from yesterday, Himesh Patel. We had him on the podcast before, not many months after he had had his first kid. And we'll be caught catching up on nearly a year of parenthood for uh for him tickets uh to the event are in the bio please please come welcome to the podcast andy oliver how are you today i am fantastic i've got my tea got a little bit of fancy chocolate looking at you i'm a happy lady <laughs> uh, t- talk me through the fancy chocolate well, I knew, I knew you'd want to know about the fancy I definitely chocolate. want to know about the fancy chocolate. It's these guys called Ombar. Have you ever had Ombar chocolate? I've, I've seen them around, but I've never tried them. Oh, my God, you've got to get into this. You need to get on board the Ombar train. It's absolutely delicious. This one has got a hazelnut truffle centre. And oh. I am not like a big chocolate head at all. But this is like, I went to their um, uh, production plant, actually. It's really small. They started in Cambridge in this one little house, and it's like it's like the guy and two women. They started doing it literally by hand, the three of them, and now they're producing. They've got a proper factory, and they produce it. It's like from a single estate in um, Peru, and you know, all the money goes back to the women that produce the cocoa, the cacao, Amazing. and the chocolate is absolutely yummy and uh, comforting and soothing, delicious. And they make one that's got coconut in the middle. If you put it in the freezer, that's a whole party right there. Oh my goodness! I mean, <laughs> this is this is not an ad. This is just it's not it, an ad. It's it's just shit. Really this is just shit love. Yeah, yeah, just uh, shit I love. Yeah. So um, you were just telling me that you are currently working on a cookbook at the moment, and you've just working been... on a cookbook. It's really fun. I mean, 
I've been wanting to, it's also like the realization of a kind of lifelong dream, I've got to say, like to write a cookbook. I mean, I cookbooks for me, do you read cookbooks, Nikesh, like for fun? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, re- I'm reading one reading one right now, in fact. What one? What, what's that? What is that? Uh, well, I'm in conversation with Yasmin Khan. Ooh, I'm in no, conversation no. with Yasmin Khan next week. Oh, right, figs. Right, figs, and it's recipes I'm and stories. Sto- recipes and stories from the Eastern Mediterranean. And so there's, you know, mm. the stuff about migration and refugees. And sounds fantastic. And right, figs is also just immediately succulent and yeah. dripping down your chin and lovely. Well, I just. So I'm writing this book, it's tentatively called The Pepper Pot Diaries, because Pepper Pot is the national dish of Antigua, which is where my family come from. And I, I mean, I've been wanting to write a book for it. I've been trying to pin down how to start, and it sort of seems to be taking the form of a diary. Because I was in Antigua, I went to Antigua just before Christmas, just before lock, like big lockdown happened, literally the day before we flew out. We've got a big project happening there, which I'll tell you about in a minute anyway. Um, and uh, I just thought, I just thought, you know, if I'm going to stay here, I'm going to use this time to write. So I started doing diary entries and it just seemed like a really natural, lovely way to do it because I'm not also a purely traditional Caribbean cook. It's that thing of, you know, I am of Caribbean extraction. It's, it's, I, was, I was having a conversation about this with myself in the writing, actually, because it's a very specific thing being a first generation immigrant child. You know, because you're not, you're neither there or here exactly. You're a bit of both. And where that sits, it takes a while to settle into it, mm. settle into your own feet on the ground, doesn't it? Because it's confusing because everybody's telling you to go home. Either when you're here, they're telling you to go home and you're like, oh, I thought I was home. I'm really sorry. And then you go to Antigua and they're like going, oh, English. And you're like, oh, right. So I am English then. You know what I mean? So it takes a while to work it out in your, not in your head so much, but in your spirit to settle into being both and other and therefore settle somewhere in, in the middle. And this book, as much as, as much as it's about food and recipes and cooking is also for me a bit about identity. Mm. I had a, a conversation with Maya Angelou once. I went to her house. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, she's literally, I, I was so nervous. I had to interview her for this project that we were working on. And she was so regal and so beautiful and so wonderful and generous and kind of everything. She kind of, she kind of floated in like the prow of a ship. Do you know what I mean? To the room, hello. And I said, oh, hello, hello. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, she said and what's your name and I said it's Andy and then she said and what's your other name and I said Oliver and she said it's so wonderful to meet you Miss Oliver and I was like oh god <laughs> and it was beautiful <laughs> had this amazing time and then she invited us back to her house for dinner that night and we went for dinner and we sat in her gazebo and we sort of sat at her feet while she told us stories about cicadas and the little house down at the back of her garden is Quincy Jones's house where he used to go and hide when things you know things were too much and we told her all these stories and we were getting a little bit pissed it's true we drank quite a lot of wine and by the time we went into her house for dinner we were all a bit pissed including Dr Angelo and um and uh, we were talking, she said, so where are your people from? And I said, Antigua. And she said, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm, I'm English. I'm from, you know, Britain. And she said, well, you're hardly the English rose, though. And I said, you know what? I think I am. I think this is what an English rose looks like. I think we look like lots of things, actually. I think we look like me. I think we look like brown girls. Uh, I think we look like blonde girls. I think we look like everything in between where, you know, an English rose can mean so many different things at this point because that's who we are now. And she went, well, that's just stupid. absolutely horrified and then I and then you know obviously tried to recover from the horror of being told that by my answer and um we were we you know it was fine and we had a really lovely night but I was there was always a little bit of me that was slightly upset that she'd said it to me and then in Antigua it suddenly dawned on me that actually even Dr Angelo with that massive brain and that huge talent and that incredible insight 
she couldn't understand what it means to be a first generation immigrant child because she's she was American, you know, and that's this just generations of it, you know. So I, I I kind of worked out that it's there's such specificity about it. There's such a there's such a you almost have to live it to know it to to really understand the the duality of it and the incongruity of it and the and the the sort of the isolationism of it because you do feel isolated at times you know I, I i grew up in suffolk and then i used to come down to london and when i finally moved to london i thought you know suffolk was hell i was the only black girl for hundreds of miles blah blah and i got to london and i thought oh brilliant all the black people are gonna be so happy to see me and we're like you're here yes finally and they were all like why do you speak like that what is the matter with you? You're some kind of weirdo. And I was like, oh my God, I was heartbroken again. So for me, it's been a series of heartbreaks. <laughs> okay. But I, I love that idea of uh, sort of trying to place, place a pin in a map through food though. And yes. finding that you need more pins, right? Because You need, you need a lot of pins. Yeah. <laughs> you need quite a big bag of pins, especially like... <clears throat> You know, for instance, in the Caribbean, the, the, the culinary DNA is so broad. It's like Portuguese, Irish, um, uh, French, Italian, um, uh, Indian, Chinese. You know, it, the, 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 the people that have trod through the Caribbean and left their mark, not just only in our physical DNA, but on the plate is just sort of endless really. And then you, of course, you have the indigenous people of the Caribbean, the Taino, the Arawaks, the Caribs. I discovered that the Taino who are part one of the indigenous tribes of Antigua, there were, they, they are the first people who were to, ever cooked with a barbecue. And the word barbecue comes from the Taino Indian people, um, as does canoe and hammock and all sorts of other weird words. I know, I know, but you love shit like that. I love stuff like that. Yeah, that's amazing. It sort of mind blows me. And then I discovered the other day that what we call fungi, which is a type of cornmeal, it's like polenta, but we make it a bit stiffer. And then we put it in a bowl with a little bit of butter and we sort of throw the bowl around and you make a ball, a bit like fufu or something. We call it fungi. And I discovered in uh, last week that in Angola, they do the same thing and call it fungi. So obviously that's where we got it from, but I didn't know that. Yeah, and that sounds very similar to Ugali there you in, go. in Kenya. Yeah, yes, it is <clears throat> like that. Yeah, um, the... You said something there that was that was really interesting. So, is this food that you're writing about, and you're, yeah. you've been in Antigua researching? Is this food that you grew up with, or is this food that you sort of discovered? It's, it's in kind of both. So, it's flavors I grew up with. It's flavors I grew up with, and I made, like for instance, I made a fungi the other day, but I made it with coconut milk, and then I bashed fried plantains through it. And uh, that's not really how you make fungi traditionally, but it was still a type of fungi. So it's the food that I grew up with and then my iteration also. So what I'm trying to do is have chapters where we have a diary entry and then, and then I'm, I'm writing about what I'm cooking that day. And then that takes into, us into another part where I then talk about traditional uses of an ingredient. So if I make a coconut, fungi i then will maybe write about cornmeal and cassava as well because i did something with cassava the same day and talk about the, the traditional uses like bambula like bami like like fungi like cuckoo like turn cornmeal they call it in jamaica you know what i mean so i'm trying to mix a bit of me and my sort of internal voice my my, my cooking voice my culinary voice uh, with tradition because that's kind of how I cook and it's kind of how I live and it's kind of how we all live a bit isn't it if you are from an immigrant background I think you, you there's a bit of the now the past the present and the future all happening at the same time really yeah uh, I, it's, it's something that I write about in in Brown Baby the sort of discovery of food as a way of connecting to home yeah in the years yeah, I love the way you talk about food in your book when you're talking about um your mum 
and the presence of her food when you find her food in the freezer I yeah. literally was so I was really choked up by that actually because it, it, the, the, the food that your parent makes you the food that you grow up with the visceral need for that and then the lack of that after they've gone is is that's trauma because it's part of your absolute jigsaw puzzle that makes up your body isn't it that smell you talk about when you're yeah. talking about your mother's cooking i can smell it when you're talking about your mother's cooking it's beautiful writing Nikesh. oh thank thank you uh, the the thing that uh, was interesting about write, writing that stuff was coming to this sort of realization of um how food connects us and food grounds us and food gives mm -hmm. us a sense of security and home mm -hmm. and um how at sort of times of crisis in my life since then where I've needed comfort you know um I put out this book in 2016 called The Good Immigrant which kind of yeah. turned me from comedy writer into expert on race even though I'm not <laughs> Oh, and, God. I, and I just found myself traveling around the country talking about racism for a living, which is not so, so, something that people set out to do. And, <laughs> no, and after each of those events, I would just I would feel so distraught and mm -hmm. traumatized by what had happened mm. that I would just reach for comfort. And I developed this sort of really problematic relationship with food because I I was reaching for that comfort that mm. I would have, you know, that's how I felt secure at home. And, and, and in a previous podcast, I was talking to Nadia Hussain about her kitchen and how her kitchen was actually uh, an interesting space. It was very much her mother's domain and, you know, the children never really went into it. Yeah. Um, do you remember the kitchen that you had growing up? Was that, was that? There, well, there were several of them because we moved around a little bit. My dad was in the RAF, but I do remember the kitchen. And actually I was in the kitchen a lot growing up because my both of my parents worked my mum was a teacher so we were what they used to call latchkey kids you know uh, I don't know people are so weird about their children these days they get so like freaked out I mean I'm, we just used to have a key You'd come home from school and I'd make tea I just used to do it every day now now some poor parent would be like having massive guilt attacks and having therapy because they weren't home to make tea do you know what I mean it's just like that's how it is when your parents work it's not a big deal my, my mum was at work and I just used to come home and make tea every day so I actually started cooking on my own in the kitchen when I was quite young I used to make, I started off making the cauliflower cheese on a Sunday to go with the roast, like standing on a stool or whatever. Uh, you know, I could make a white sauce when I was really, it was about six or something. And, um, and making cauliflower cheese was the first sort of big thing that I used to make every week. And um, the kitchen actually also, because I had a really, what they would now call problematic father. Um, he was a terrible philanderer. And, uh, well, just he was basically, I think, um, a bit bipolar. But, you know, in those days, he would never have been diagnosed. But he was definitely, there were manic episodes. And, you know, he would buy everybody presents and be around the house and be really, really fun. And then the electricity would get cut off and he wouldn't talk to you for two days. Do you know what I mean? And you'd think you'd done something really bad. But the happy times I remember with him were in the kitchen. You know, he would play, he had a brilliant record collection, like brilliant, brilliant, brilliant record collection. So we'd be listening to like Sam Cooke and James Brown and we'd be, he'd be roasting chicken. I'd be making cauliflower cheese. We'd be roasting potatoes. Mum would be doing stuff, we'd be dancing. He could really sing as well, we'd be singing. And so it was like a Sunday place of, of happiness. In the, in the week, it was quite utilitarian and we just got on with it. Mum would leave stuff out and I would cook it. Um, and then on a Sunday, it was a kind of, it was like the heart of the home, really. And, and I was in it and I, and I, and I, and I really treasured it. It was a, you know, on a, on a Saturday, mum would bake bread and mm, you'd come, I could smell it would wake me up from my bed, like, oh my God, the bread's in the oven, do you know what I mean? And you'd come down and she would make bacon rolls and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I remember our kitchen well and with, with real uh, affection actually it was my happy place and I thought that's probably why I you know you know you're talking about uh, times of loss um really needing that and you know when my brother died I was how old was I I was like 25 and he died and he was like 27 he died really suddenly and 
I just cooked. Nana, my Nana Cherry is my best mate, and I just cooked. She was staying in. Are you? Aren't you in Bristol? Yeah, we had it. She yeah. had this farm just outside Bristol because she was recording. In fact, they were recording Massive Attack. Cameron was producing Blue Lines at the time. They, and, uh, she, and... she crops up in, in Brown Baby. <laughs> oh, does she? Yeah, because um, you know, I, I obviously was obsessed with her as a as a teenager. And, oh yeah, you're the right age. <laughs> and um she when her documentary came out, she was doing I, I used to work at a place in Bristol called the Watershed. I still have, oh, no, no, the watershed. I still have yeah. a desk I still have a desk there and uh you're you it, and uh, she she they she was doing an event around her documentary and in the early weeks of my second child because my wife needed sleep and our first child needed sleep I would and it was a really hot summer. Oh, you're walking. Yeah, I would put I put walking. the put the kid into the sling and and yeah. take her for walks around Bristol. And one day, uh, I was walking around Bristol, and my you know my colleagues were like, "Nana Cherry's in the building. Do you want? Do you want?" And so there's a photo of Nana meeting our youngest daughter. Oh, really? Oh, I'm so cute. The, the the curators brought her over to say hello to me because oh. I sort of popped it, popped in for for a glass of water because she, she loved the father. And she, she said she said hello, and then she was like. Is there a baby in there? I was like, yeah. Very surprised. <laughs> <laughs> very surprised. Oh well, we were we were staying just outside Bristol in, in this farmhouse because Cam was recording the, the the record with Massive, and uh, I just remember one day we were cooking and cooking, and I, I'm obsessed with gravy anyway. I just I can't stand dry food; it does my head in. And so I'm always like, is there enough gravy? Even on even on Great British Menu, I'm talking to really fancy chefs. I'm like, sounds great. Is there going to be gravy? And are you making enough? Don't give me one of those stupid little jujugs. I need a proper jug of gravy. Let's not muck about, boys. So um, so um, so and, and and one day we were cooking all this food. I think it, I'm not even sure if it was after. It must have been after the funeral because after the funeral we went up to Bristol, and I had literally made. You know, though you will know because of your because you're an Asian person. You know those giant pots, giant, giant, like fifteen liter pots that you use for like a big part family party thing. I had made that just of gravy. Oh, <laughs> I, I got like, and then I suddenly realized that we became hysterical. You know, you lost as well. You go from like weeping to hysterical laughter in two seconds. And Nana and I literally couldn't stop laughing. We were like, oh my God, we've been taken over by gravy because we kept going, it's not enough, it's not enough, it's not enough. And adding more stock and chucking things in it. And we literally had like 15, 20 liters of gravy, which I'm sure eventually got eaten. So, yeah, so food. And I do understand, my friend calls what you described, I have a friend called Vivian Goldman, she's a brilliant writer, and she describes that kind of hunger as the existential hunger, because it, that's, it's, a, it's a hunger you're never going to, you can't ever find an end to it, because it's, really, it's not your stomach that's hungry, it's your heart, and when your heart is hungry, you know, you, you just have to wait for it to heal. I developed the same problem as you, like I couldn't stop eating. After my brother died, I was eating in the dark, crying, rocking. I had to go into treatment. Yeah. I went to the treatment centre. I got really, really ill. And I didn't... The thing about that kind of thing, when your relationship with food becomes really unhealthy, is that externally, people don't recognise it as illness. They just think you're a pig. Do you know what I mean? They just think you're greedy. And you think, I, that's what I thought too. I was like, I'm disgusting. I can't stop eating. And I didn't recognise that in the same way that if I'd stopped eating, if I was anorexic, everybody would have recognised it. If I was bulimic, people would have recognised it. But I became really compulsive. And um, it was awful. Luckily, I met this incredible doctor who saved my life. And he said, you're ill and I'm going to help you and uh, he took me he let me go to his treatment center for free it was I was really poor I had no money and it was like something like eight grand a week and he let me go there for two months and gotten better and I'll never Dr Robert Lefevre I'm eternally grateful to that man because he got me well yeah I I often find it's um it's the sort of it's the feeling of shame afterwards that's yeah. the thing that kind of undoes you because, awful and you know that i talk about it a lot in the book but it'd be just it'd be the case of like 
as soon as as soon as the anxiety hits and yeah. i feel that that hunger that sort of that desire for salt or sugar in in the yeah. back of my throat we could be cooking the most delicious well-planned well thought out gourmet meal ever but i'll still need to duck out to the shops for something just mysterious something. Just to, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and, it, and it's it's the immediate shame that you feel and then you end up not enjoying the meal that you've spent a long time a long time because you've already eaten something crap and yeah. you're ashamed about that and you don't really want to talk to anybody else about it no it's a horrible spiral and i guess you know that the problem with mental illness and emotional unrest as well is that that is the cycle isn't it it's like the anxiety the uh reaching for whatever it is whether it's food or heroin or crack or whatever it's, but it's the same, it's the same instinct. It's the same impulse, really, I should say. It's the same compulsion, but people don't think about it in the same kind of way. Um, and, and then after that, you know, immediate gratification, it, you're back to shame again and feeling really bad. And then you, so then you start craving the crap again. It's like, it's a terrible, terrible, awful, exhausting thing. Again, very hard for people to understand unless they've been on the inside of it. That cycle. Yeah. Um, where, so, where, you know, you, you're obviously a, a parent. Did, did, the <laughs> ki- did the kitchen, did... Um, did was was food a big part of your your own sort of life as a parent was was that quite a it was but you know Nikita was quite funny about it she you know she was a bit like oh god will you shut up about chicken do you know what I mean <laughs> she was like it's great it's great it's great but I don't want to talk to you about it it was like it's like you know like her her rebellion was to uh like she always wanted to live and she used to pull out weird pictures from magazines that of houses that looked like an office. Like she wanted us to, I, I always had like some, you know, fabric draped over everything and duvets and music and cooking. And she was a bit like, why can't we live like this? She was always trying to force me into another shape, you know? And, you know, she really wanted to twin set me. She really wanted to WI me up like quite badly. When I went at one point when she was younger, I had to, well, I wasn't even allowed at the school gate. I had to wait down the road. I had a full length electric blue fake fur coat and this giant hat that went with it. I thought I looked good, okay, because it was a look and I was into it. And she was like, where are you going in that? You're not going to the school. So I used to have to wait like a block down the road for about, there was, there was a good year where I was, all her mates thought I was great, but she was just like, oh my God, you're literally the most embarrassing person in the world. So her rebellion really was to, not really be that interested. I was always trying to drag her into the kitchen and talk to her about all these things I was doing. And then, but, but happily, what I discovered, I've discovered in the last years, because now she's quite into cooking, is it all went in anyway by osmosis. She couldn't help it because she was around it so much and me and Nana were always cooking and there was always something going on in that kind of way that she kind of, she's like, I don't know how I know how to do that. It's like, because I taught you. Even when I taught you, even when you were trying to make me shut up, I was still talking to you about it. And it went in nevertheless. And that's quite a, quite, I'm quite happy about that. I love that her idea of rebellion was to be sort of as square as possible. I thought she was going to be a policewoman at one point. <laughs> I really did. She was really, she got, she's quite, she's quite, she got very prudish, quite uptight. She's still quite uptight, you know, she's got colour coordinated wardrobe and, you know, hangers have to be the right way round. I don't even, I'm like, what is, I don't even understand what that means. How, how is there a wrong way round for a hanger to be? She's like, mum, it's like this, you know, so she's very, because I think, you know, I was 20 when I had her and life was quite unruly and quite wild, I suppose. And then, and then I was very depressed after my brother died for a good nine years, really. And I was like high functioning, depressed, basically. Um, is that noise bothering you? Is it a problem for the business? Right. Um, so, uh, you know, it's that thing, you know, I think parents, all parents live with regret. 
I regret that I was as depressed as I was for such a long time. I didn't even know I was depressed, you know. I regret that I was perhaps a little wild when she was still quite young. I, you know, I regret a lot of things, but I was still growing up. So I forgive myself those things as well. And we're, these days we have a really, we are very close and we talk about, she's, had ther she's in therapy now. I've had a lot of therapy. I'm a big advocate of therapy. I'm like, just go to therapy. It's a great thing. <laughs> just do it. Just do it for yourself. Even if you're not feeling shit, just go. Because I think that actually it's a really healthy thing to find a space where once a week you can work out what's going on with yourself because you don't take the time to do it. And actually people speak about it as if it's a sort of modern middle-class, um, you know, sort of um, luxury. And in fact, I just think that tribally it's as old as the hills. People used to go and speak to the elders, didn't they? Or the wise ones, they would take time if they were having a problem and go and find somebody within the, the, the living social, uh, parameters that they were living in there was always somebody there to go talk to and that's all the therapists are so she's got a therapist and we've been chatting <laughs> we've been talking for quite a long time now and it's brilliant i'll tell you what did us really great we did this trip across asia do you know about this we did a show for bbc2 called uh eight go rallying and we drove across asia in a 1953 uh it wasn't a morris is it morris minor something like that anyway it's a really bang, banged out old car but we had to be with each other like 12 hours a day or something 10 hours a day in this tiny car in the heat driving in this car rally and seriously that's like make or break stuff <laughs> <laughs> all, our, all our family were like, you're going to do what? <laughs> you know, my mate was like, oh my God, I cannot wait to watch this. But actually, it made us even closer because we were, we were like, oh right, we're just going to have to do this now. And we just learnt, it, it taught us to be really patient with each other. And it taught us how to be really forgiving of each other's kind of weird, you know, vicissitudes, I suppose, is the best way to put it. And uh, she lives just across the road from me together all the time. Just now, when I was away for three months, it was the longest we've been apart. It was a bit weird. In fact, it was very weird. But yeah, the, the thing that you were saying earlier <clears throat> about therapy was really interesting because I... You know, I happily talk to my friends, my partner about therapy and, and, you know, even talk about it at events and stuff. But when I admitted to my sister over text that I was in therapy a couple of months ago, I got so upset by it. I got so upset mm -hmm. by this revelation. It was almost like I almost felt, felt in that moment like I'd failed where she hadn't. Yeah. You know, we'd had the same upbringing and she was yeah. fine and I wasn't fine. And, and yeah. Not. But yeah, yeah, but she's probably not. But I had just sort of come to that decision quicker than her. And it was just yeah. like, again, it was that shame, which I thought was really... It's, isn't it interesting? Because actually, after a while, I, I think it's just brave. I think it's really brave to be able to admit your vulnerabilities and say, I can't. I'm, I'm broken. I don't know how to, to get up today. I don't know how to put one foot in front of the other. I don't know how to keep going. And, you know, breaking down was the best thing that ever happened to me. My nervous breakdown was the best thing that ever happened to me because it meant I divested myself of all of the kind of weird things, the walls I put up and the kind of microaggression things that I had sort of um, absorbed into my spirit over the years that I thought were truths, you know. The, you know, growing up in Suffolk as the only black girl for a long, for miles and miles and miles was no joke, you know, and it was the 70s for God's sake. <laughs> it wasn't even now, do you know what I mean? It was the 70s, it was like black and white Britain, it was before anybody turned the colour lights on, it was a, it was a very, tricky time you know I the, the 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 way that racism I think the most insidious part of it for me wasn't even really the external you know Nick not gollywog stuff even though obviously that was you know was it is it you that talks in your book about sticks and stones do hurt 
they do break your bones actually and they do hurt it's, yeah. you, it's really difficult to have you know it's like running the gauntlet every day going into school having people hurling racist abuse at you people don't understand what that does to you I was you know quite a tough kid and I would I used to fight all the time physically I had to fight people people always wanted to fight me because I was different you know some weird girl because everybody was like, oh, Gillian wants to fight you. I was like, who the fuck is Gillian? I don't even know Gillian. You know, Gillian came up to me at school one day and I'm reading my book, which books for me were my lifeline. You know, I'm reading my book, Gillian, come on then. Come. I was like, can you just go, I don't know you, go away. Gillian rips the book out of my hand and rips my book. So I lost it because she ripped my book and I got in trouble for punching Gillian's stupid face in. Do you know what I mean? It's like Gillian, frankly, Nikesh was asking for it. <laughs> but I used to fight all the time, physically, because I had to. It was like people used to fight me. They used to push me around, physically shove me around. I had to fight back, fight back. And also it made me quite adept verbally. You know what I mean? I, I, I would become, I, would, I got quite nimble because I had to talk myself, myself out of trouble and out of situations all the time because people were constantly trying to back you into a corner. And so there was all of that external stuff. But then, the, you know, the other things, the sort of little, I had a teacher that used to call me you people. You know, she she would say, yeah, I'd say something. She'd go, yes, well, you people do, don't you? Literally, that's what she'd call me in the RAF. Her name was Miss Scottford. Oh God. Old bitch. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I mean, I, I'm laughing, but it's awful. It's terrible. Yeah. I, you know, I had a German teacher that stood me at the front of the class when I had my hair in plaits and got the whole class. The first five minutes of the German lesson were tried to humiliate me in German about my hairstyle. How, who does that to a 10 year old child? You know and, what I mean? And did, did any of this <laughs> did any of this affect how you you raised your daughter? Where you thinking about her going through these similar things to what you'd gone through yes I was I was really scared that she was going to have to go through all of those things um and uh so I was I was hyper vigilant hyper hyper vigilant again actually that was something else she rejected you know me trying to educate her about our heritage she uh she really rejected that part of herself and I think she internalized my self-rejection of my blackness myself um the problems I had internalized about being a dark-skinned black woman she in turn she then internalized I think that's one of the things I regret you know she we've come through it now but you know when she was younger it just happens really early doesn't it where they start going there's something wrong with my hair why is my hair like this? My friend's hair is not like this. Her, you know, they want to be a blonde little princess because that's what's pushed down their throats every single day of the week, you know? And um, it, it, I felt like I was fighting a losing battle and an uphill battle. She always had a weave, she always had a hair straight. And she was, she's now got natural hair and she's finally embraced both sides of herself. Her father's Scottish and white, and he also wasn't around. You know, I, we weren't together when I had her, so I was a single parent. And he was around and he wasn't around, he was around, he was back and forth, back and forth. And I think that rejection as well made her really, the part of her she wanted to embrace was her white half and not her black half. She really rejected that part of herself in some ways, you know, because I think that, it felt for her like that was the half that was a problem and that that was going to be a problem for her socially and societally so she tried to pretend that she wasn't half black really do you know what I mean even though we, she and I were together all the time it was a real problem for her was there was there a turning point for you both? Was it stuck in a car together halfway, between, car halfway across <laughs> approaching the Cobra Pass and thinking? Well, I think I think that's when we really started to examine what had happened and how she had navigated it and how I had navigated it. It was absolutely on that trip was a real life changing journey for us for sure. Um, and you know that was only a few years ago. She's thirty five now. 
So, you know, it's maybe about four or five years ago or something like that. So, you know, they, that, that, the damage that that stuff does, the damage that those little microaggressions, you know, to me, and I keep talking about them because I, I just feel like there's a sort of corrosive, indelible imprint left on your spirit by that stuff. And that stuff, it's really almost impossible to explain to people how small it makes you feel and how tired and broken it can leave you. And uh, so it took a long time to get to it. I, I often think that, you know, yes, we really have to think about the systemic stuff that we want to, that we need to dismantle in order to achieve, a, a tr you know, true equality or equity or, or what, you know, whatever that looks like, but, but actually, you know, and, and I find in sort of conversations around racism, you often see that people sort of minimize the effect that things like microaggressions can have on a person, yeah. but, you know, where I see it is affecting my, 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 th my three-year-old or my, my yeah. five-year-old or like how it affected me when I was 12, you know, basically at critical times in your life, when you're starting to make decisions about who you are, who, who you can be, what your place in the world is, stuff like that can really throw you off course and Absolutely. it's nothing it's in it's actually nothing to do with who you are mm. and yet it becomes everything about who you are the, the fabric yeah becomes part of the fabric i mean i drank enormous amounts of alcohol basically i just got pissed all the time i just you know what i mean I, and i I didn't really recognise what that was about for quite a long time, you know. I, I don't, I'm not teetotal now, but I don't really drink that much anymore, hardly ever. I can't be bothered, just don't, don't have the time, don't have the energy, <laughs> and I've got to get to sleep, I've got work to do. But I recognised retrospectively that half of that was, you know, being in my 20s and having a party and having a laugh, and half of it was trying to obliterate myself, you know, and trying to trying to wipe out that's what self self-hatred looks like do you know what I mean and self-rejection looks like and that's what it looked like for me it, it just became dysfunction around alcohol and food really those mm. two things and I you know I'm, I, I feel very I feel like all of that stuff has helped me in a really weird way, because it's meant that I am quite an empathetic person and it's made me kind and it's made me more patient. I mean, I have to work on the patient bit <laughs> actively on a daily basis because it's not naturally <laughs> way. But I do take a deep breath and I stop and I go, okay, just sharp a minute and listen. You know, I've had to learn how to hear and how to listen. But I think all of that came to me because. I had to battle through all of that stuff to survive, you know, and people were always going to me. And I think it's one of the reasons why I've got successful later in my life. I found success later in my life because I'm finally in myself and I'm finally happy with myself so I can allow myself to finally bloom and blossom. And, I, you know, I'm 57 years old. It's taken me a long time to allow myself the space to be, to be myself and to feel the power that I have innately with it. People all my life have gone, oh, you're a really powerful woman out there. And I think, what are you talking about? Because I never felt empowered and I never felt, I always felt a little bit less than and not quite good enough and a little bit, you know, crap at the edges. One, one of the questions I'm asking all of, all of my guests, uh, yeah but just because it's it's sort of the big question at the heart of the book and at the heart of like everything I think about parenting is mm -hmm. is geared towards this question which is how do we how do we raise our kids to be joyful and boundless and see see the infinite potential of the world when the world is so bleak and I feel so angry and mm. sad about it uh, is 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 that something that you've ever kind of considered and and yeah. have any strat strategies that you can yeah. do with the <laughs> think about it all the time? Yeah. <laughs> no, but I do because how can you not? How can you how can you be awake and not think about that stuff all the time? Um, and uh, that annoys me as well. By the way, the kind of way they commented the, the the notion of being awake woke and turned it into a pejorative thing that really pisses me off because thank God we're awake. That's all I've got to say. But 
it, going back to your question, I think that the way I think I think the way that I deal with that is to um, focus on the on the day to day, and focus on the joy that we can create between each other, because joy is not joy is not a world condition. Joy is a human choice. You know, you reach for joy and you reach for the light and you reach for happiness. And if you keep reaching for that every day, sometimes you'll miss it. And sometimes the day will be a bit crap, but you know what? There's another one tomorrow. And that's the kind of how me and Makita approach our lives each day. And, you know, little things are the things that bring you joy. That's the other thing to understand and recognize. It's like, yes, we'd all love world peace. We'd all love the polar ice caps to stop melting. We'd all love all of these things to, you know, those things are not going to happen overnight. We may or may not be in the planet. We may or may not have, there may, may or may not be a planet left for our great grandchildren, Nikesh, who knows? But what I do know is that today I can make happiness in my family and I can do joyful things with work and I can make beautiful things to eat. I can take a a yam or I can take a parsnip or I can take a aubergine and do something brilliant with it that I can make spices happen in a pan and suddenly the house is filled with incredible smells and I can put on a wreather and I can dance and I can add some coconut to it and suddenly you got your joy right there do you know what I mean for like at least an hour or so and that's a balm and that's my way of healing daily and and I think that's why I love cooking so much and that's why I love writing actually and that's why I love where I am and it's also why I'm grateful to be 57 or however old I am I keep get, forgetting I feel I am 57 I, keep, I literally can't remember you remember when you're young and people go they can't remember how old they are and you go oh don't be so stupid I literally keep forgetting how old I am uh 57 it is um and I am so grateful to still be here because you know there's a lot well, I've lost a lot of people along the way obviously at this point in my life so I'm grateful to still be here I'm grateful for the success I've found in my life and I'm grateful for the beauty around me every day I, you know I look out the window I've got blossom just there on the corner I've got fresh parsley in the tin I've got food in my fridge I've got a roof over my head I've got a family that loves me and I, I there are lots of beautiful wonderful things to be grateful for every day so I reach for that and not the despair and I choose it every day I love that I love that so much that idea of just being present and you know choosing acts that make you present you know like like yeah. cooking I think is, is such a beautiful thing um my final my final question before before we wrap up uh mm. what's the best and the most useless advice you've ever received as a parent over the years <laughs> <laughs> uh the best advice as a parent I guess my mum <laughs> my mum my mum's really funny and she said to me I was like really you know you know kids go through a weird thing they won't eat for a day or something just like won't eat and you start panicking about it and she's like my mum's like look she's not going to starve herself to death she looks quite healthy if she doesn't eat for a day she's going to be all right it's not going to be the end of the world stop freaking out about tiny little things Do you know what I mean she cuts her knee just put a plaster on it let the air get to it she's going to be fine it's like she got me to focus on keeping them alive in a much bigger way <laughs> rather than worrying if they fall over, worrying if they decide they're not eating. They're not eating today, give them some juice, make sure she's had some vitamins or something. She'll be all right. You know, we're, we live in a fairly cosseted, uh, you know, privileged manner. She's going to be fine. She really is. So I, I stopped worrying about all that stuff. Um, so that was the best advice. The worst advice, I suppose, oh God, I just really hate it when people try to disguise children's behavior as i remember somebody going well maybe she's a rainbow child i was like what the hell's a rainbow child and they were like you know <laughs> it's this woman at the play group and she was like you know some children are great you know they're children that are they have they have their own way they just forge their own path and i was like basically you're describing a brat 
to me. The child needs to sort this shit out. They're not in charge. I'm in charge. She's not in charge of me. I'm in charge of her. I know what these rainbow children are, but I really don't want one, okay? So good luck with that, and I'm out of here. So just I really can't stand that cosseting and putting children in charge. They're not meant to be in charge. They don't want to be in charge. They're just trying it because that's what they're meant to do. But they don't need to be in charge. They need to be able to express themselves clearly and honestly, emotionally, but don't put them in charge of the family. They're six. You know, the whole family doesn't have to go home because little Trudy's having a tantrum. Little Trudy needs to sort the shit out and go sit down and have a juice for a minute. Do you know what I mean? It's like when people, there's a whole, what they call those, um, oh, National Childbirth Trust stuff. My friend had a baby, it nearly drove her mad because she kept, she was like, we've got to have this routine. I was like, you really don't. You really, really don't have to have this routine. It's like sometimes if you're at your mate's house, you don't have to go home, have bath time, twinkle, twinkle, star time, bedtime. It, it, they're going to be all right. Put them to sleep in the back, lie down with them for 10 minutes in the back bedroom. They'll go to sleep and you can stay and have a glass of wine with your friend and then get a cab home. That's absolutely acceptable. That's how I, that's what I think. I mean, everybody just needs to relax, frankly. Andy Oliver, thank you so much. Is that really bad? No, that was great. That was perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It, it's so lovely to talk to you. I could talk to you all day. I love your book so much. Actually, I'm going to go back to listening to it this afternoon. It's just the best audio book. Please, anybody listening to this, have a, if you haven't read it, you don't have time to read it, get the audio book and listen to it because it's absolutely beautiful and I'm having the time of my life. Nikesh, it's so good to meet you. You too. Thank you. I hope to see you again. Take care. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you to Andy for her time. Thank you to Bluebird and to Acast. And thank you to you for being here and listening. Please buy my book. Please come to London Podfest. Tickets are in bio. Shukla is on holiday. But you won't really notice because next week the podcast will just come out as usual and I probably won't even reference the holiday. Goodbye. For goodbye, my brown babies. Goodbye, my brown babies. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.